0: Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.
1: All right. On that note, we are going to go ahead and start this week's journal club. Um, I am Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. And I ask anyone who's not speaking yet to please go on mute. Um, We have a lot of information that we want to go through and share with you Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. So I want to start where we normally start with just a brief update around um, where we're at and we know that um, globally we're 120 million cases plus cases throughout the um, world with over 2.6 million deaths. In the United States, we've um, we're at over 29.5 um, million with um, 536,922 deaths. Um, when we look at where we're at, we're tracking around positivity rates. The United States um, seven-day average has been 8.18% with which means that we're seeing around 57,000 confirmed cases daily. That is a significant decline since we last spoke. So that is a real positive number. And I was very happy to see this morning that our um, seven day average in Florida um, was 5.88%. So still a little bit higher than where the World Health Organization recommends for reopening, but we do know that um, we have reopened across much of the state. Um, you know, we see some spring break pictures, so we're not going to talk about that. But um, there, there is more news about that to come. So, hopefully, we'll keep seeing positive numbers. I just wanted to highlight this because um, the COVID tracking project has been giving out some really great data. They have since stopped collecting data, reporting out anything. But as of March fourth, um, we did see that in the long-term care facilities, although less than one percent of America, America's population, we're ca- accounting for thirty-four percent of those U.S. COVID um, deaths. So, Florida, you know, like I said, we've been seeing some really good um, things here in our state. Um, I think um, there's a lot of positive things to talk about when it comes to how we're, we're doing in Florida, spring break aside, um, you know, we're about 1.9 million plus um, total cases. But when we look into our daily cases, we have seen a a gradual decline. Um, This was updated as of this morning and is data through the 14th, which was, uh, what was that, Sunday? We had um, on Sunday, um, daily cases of um, 2872 and it brought our positivity rate at 6.13%. So that's not bad given everywhere that we've we've been at what has been really wonderful has been what we've been seeing in the um, SNFs and ALs with both our positivity rates for our residents and staff continuing to decline. And I think that's a testament not only to the vaccinations but just to the the vigilance that we've had um, in our um, SNFs and ALs. So where does that bring us now? We're looking at um, some of the updates. We see that as of this morning, this is um, what we're, we're looking at. For at least one dose of um, a vaccine, we have over 72 million um, people in the United States receiving that one dose, over 39 million fully vaccinated. I believe over the weekend, I think it was on Saturday, we had 2.98 million vaccinated in one day. So that's all great news. In Florida, we are seeing that um, Um, According to the the CDC report this morning, there's only over, um, I think, 5 million people vaccinated. It's it's really good, solid, steady numbers that we're seeing. So that is a good thing. This is a little harder to read, but this is just um, from the Federal Pharmacy Partnership um, long-term care um, data, they had over um, 7 million receiving the first dose, 2 million receiving the second dose fully vaccinated. Which is um, good news, and um, we're going to talk to Kim about some of these things in a minute. I wanted to also just let you know that the CMS uh, CMS has um, put out updates around nursing home guidance in accordance to the recommendations that um, the CDC um, um, provided. You know, this is also some good news, and it really does go into what it to do if you have only. Um, greater than 70% um, fully vaccinated in your building and how you can um, go into doing that. Um, those visitations. I think the one question that I saw trending this weekend was how do we, in getting those patients out of the hospital, make sure that they either get their first dose or when the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is available, get a dose of that prior to coming to our facilities. So. We will probably get into those discussions too with Kim in a minute. So I wanted to just um, also touch upon the fact that there is constant um, monitoring of um, the different variants. I know the this is um, like a headline on every news show about how many variants and. Um, I think there are six that we're monitoring. Um, the um, top three are listed here, which are the UK, um, the South African and the Brazil um, variants. We also know that there are variants in California. Um, those variants have been seen in, in Texas. We are seeing the New York variant, um, not to the same penetration as the, um, the, the three that the that the CDC is tracking um, steadily. So there is some information um, on their website about these. We did talk about this a few weeks ago and as we get some updates, I will make sure we put those in our, in our library. What I wanna do though, for um, the remainder of our time is really just do a deep dive into um, our overall progress. And um, for this, I'm going to bring on Kim Smoke And Kim, if you would um, just introduce yourself, reintroduce yourself. I don't think you need introductions, but um, this is your second time on our journal club and you've spoken to us a thousand times, but just, just to be complete, please um, go ahead and introduce yourself.
2: Great, thank, thank you for allowing me to be here. And I'm glad that um, Ian put up my shot with me in green since it is St. Patrick's Day. So I have green on as well in my office. So at least I'm in compliance with St. Patrick's Day attire. Um, I am Kim Smoke, I am the um, <clears throat> Assistant Deputy Secretary for Health Quality Shirts here at the Agency for Healthcare Administration. I'm the Chief of Field Operations and oversee the, um, as a State Survey Agency Director, I oversee all the inspections in the healthcare facilities. Um, I work directly for Deputy Secretary Molly McKinstry, who as you know, um, has been right at the forefront of, of leadership. Um, at our agency and honestly through, throughout the state, frankly, um, when it comes to the COVID response. So um, I just wanted to you know, make that aware as well. And, and just another reminder for those on the call today, if you don't know, um, we do have a new secretary here at the Agency for um, Healthcare Administration. Um, Secretary um, Simone uh, Marciller started with us a couple of weeks ago. Um, she hit the ground running because um, we're in the middle of session plus still dealing with the vaccine rollout um, in the state. So um, thanks for again for allowing me to be here um, with you guys. I really do appreciate this opportunity. Um, so would you like for me to kind of just, just get started with the conversation about some
1: of the things that, that we, you wanted me to yeah. talk about today? Yeah, let's go ahead and um, <clears throat> dive into what we've learned thus far. I mean, I think that would be a good place to start.
2: Okay, great. Now I know you gave a little bit of statistics. I have a little more to share if possible. Um, Just for our hospital COVID cases, just to let you know, there have been a 15% decrease in COVID positive cases in um, hospitals over the past two weeks. So we have seen, you know, a slow decline um, with COVID positive hospitalizations. And since we're like the spring break capital of the world, it seems, I think we all are holding our breath as we get through the next couple of weeks with spring break to see what happens after that. Um, But, you know, as as we know, we've seen those decreases and a 42% decrease in um, COVID positive residents um and staff in our nursing facilities and assisted living facilities in the past two weeks so we're seeing that I know you you showed that data earlier since I know some of what we wanted to talk about is vaccine um, there have been over 67% of our residents in nursing homes that have received the vaccine A little over 35% of staff received the vaccine. Obviously, we want the staff a little higher than that and appreciate um, any outreach that you're doing as a medical director and trying to address vaccine hesitancy. I will say this, every day, we are getting more and more feedback from facilities that have said, hey, I've talked to additional residents or talked to additional staff. Um, they want the vaccine, Um, you know, that, you know, the Johnson and Johnson is out the one shot and you're done. Um, In addition to the Pfizer and, and Moderna, you know, we are seeing more and more request um, in the nursing home industry and assisted living facility industry of more staff wanting to get vaccinated. So that's a that's a good thing. Um, And I think you know, early on, there was a lot of hesitancy um, with that. And I know a lot of you are are working with your facilities and just encourage you to continue to work with your facilities. I know a lot of nursing homes have put out a lot of some great messaging internally. Um, Some of the things I've heard is you know um the medical, the uh, you know leadership in the facility when staff see the leadership in the facility getting the vaccine and you know they see that you know your your arm doesn't fall off or you don't start glowing in the middle of the night or you know something like that that no you know adverse side effects then people are more you know apt to to take it you know um you know that seeing that leadership um you know take that first step to to get that i have seen that i have seen some facilities do video clips of residents who have said please get the vaccine how that impacts the resident and their quality of life and and their ability to have family you know come in to visit them so um, a little bit of pressure i think from the residents i've seen some of those best practices and and just you know just continuing to educate and educate and educate and i know as medical directors uh, we actually need you on the front front line there, helping with education for, for vaccine hesitancy. Um, so let's talk about, um, I did get some some questions here. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about those. I have a couple of things right now, so I'd put my glasses on to, to see them. So some of the things, kind of lessons learned are what were the most significant changes that we believe our long-term care facilities um, really face obviously big one um, we know it was the lack of PPE Um, that's been a big conversation I think recently is um, you know just the amount of PPE that the nursing homes had to to purchase and use every day um, is very different than you know uh, that you had to use previously so the lack of PPE, lack of um, facility knowledge and you know the ever-changing CDC recommendations. I think that we all have been caught up in, one day CDC says to do this, the next day they say do that. So, and that was a big you know thing for us is getting that information out to providers too, is just trying to keep up day to day. I actually had one staff member and still do to this day, have one staff member, that's her job every single day go to CDC website, you know, by by midday every day, send out any new updates. What are those new updates? Highlight those new updates. And then that's that's the best practice that we started right away because things were changing. So we needed to get information out. I, I mean, the surveyors are, are out in the field, you know, so we needed to give them the tools necessary to do their job and then to share that information with you guys. But those are some of the things, you know, that we see, you know, ongoing changes, in guidance not only from cdc but cms <laughs> i think that you know as the regulatory agency we were getting something about every week from cms you know a new updated focused infection control form um, new guidance are new well we want you to do it this way versus that way um, so some of those you know as things change because we know over time you know, things changed with the COVID response, and changed with you know how we would approach you know residents who are COVID and and isolating um, and, and quarantining those residents. So as they changed and the new information emerged, you know, making those adjustments and adapting to that various um, changes. And one of the things <clears throat> we felt regulatory wise that were a challenge, maybe some lessons learned, is um, lack of facilities having those trained infection preventionists. Um, You know, that was in the requirement and it was rolled back a little bit um, and then bam, the pandemic hit. So lack of having those trained on site infection preventionists, um, you know, and staffing challenges as well, you know, having um, staff um, working, you know, day in and day out. Um, I know for a lot of nursing home folks that may be on, we, we know that was a challenge for you and still is to this day um, a challenge as far as staffing and then that constant battle of education and knowledge um, of, um, you know, your staff and obviously visitor restrictions um, really, you know, have, have impacted or been significant challenges because we know a lot of facilities really, you know, <clears throat> Um, had a lot of family members that came in a lot to help with their family, their loved ones, maybe came in, you know, and fed mom, you know, three, every, every meal came in, you know, and then, then now all of a sudden the daughter can't come in to feed mom. So then now the staff are having to adjust to, to take that additional responsibility on it's their responsibility anyway, but the family was able to come in to help with some of these you know, care area concerns or, uh, you know, assisting with ADLs and now all of a sudden, you know, we're on lockdown, right? No visitors can come in. So now I think that's that increased, you know, staffing demands and staffing needs um, as we went through, you know, the pandemic. So some of the things that that we still see that remain a challenge for facilities even now obviously allowing families and visitors to return to the facility and still protecting residents um and i know um dr sanders to say, say to, uh, mentioned it that you know Q, you know the new updated visitation guides <clears throat> a lot more flexibility and those requirements now um they definitely are more stringent than the state so obviously we would you know say hey this is what you you follow as a as a nursing home um but you know now looking at those you know, tweaks that CMS made and following those, but it still is a challenge, I know, allowing those visitors and families to return and still your obligation and responsibility to protect all your residents. Uh, we know staffing still remains a challenge for many nursing homes. I hear it every day when we do surveys, obviously, and we're we're brought back to doing recertification surveys. We're looking at staffing. That's something that, that we hear frequently. Uh, you know, a large portion of our, our facilities are still dealing with with staffing issues. And we are getting feedback. You know, many staff um, left healthcare to avoid COVID altogether, right? Um, and staff are not returning to the workforce. So. I think that you know staffing is a it continues to be a, a, a big issue in that that workforce um you know still I think managing the guidance that comes out you know we know now you know the PBE supply chain is is open uh, but we also know CDC um continues to to review and revise their guidance based on new information that emerges over time, so still challenging on, on making sure you keep up with that. As I mentioned earlier, have one staff person. That's her job. Every single day, e- even now, we're we're still in the public health emergency that's not been lifted. Um, so even staying on top of that is still is still something that's that's a challenge. Um, and
1: and um, can I ask you? Um, sure. going back to one of the the points that you covered about the staffing challenges. I think the first thing that I did see when that guidance came out was a lot of medical directors concerns on how they were going to be able to accommodate visitations. Do you know of any best practices or any facilities that their approach to that like where where that may be the golden example of what we should be doing?
2: No, that's a great question and no I don't. I've not heard anything from any one facility over another obviously we've had some discussions with both nursing home associations um and you know as they give guidance to their members um, one of the things you know we're, we're looking at it and it balancing the the dem order 20-011 is still in in place you know that that the you know the state visitation requirements and then we have the cms memo so we're still working through some of those Differences and nuances and having some conversations with providers, but I, that is a great question. I, I do not know um, what facilities <clears throat> are doing as far as their best practice. I think really, um, even when CMS released the memo, we've had some conversations with CMS leadership and, and they were, you know, really, I think we all were a little concerned about some of the language that they put in about, you know, if you're, if you, you know, your county positivity rate is, is, you know, less than 10 percent, less than 70 percent, I mean, more than 70 percent of your your residents have been vaccinated, you know, how all that plays, it's, you know, facilities are really going to have to pay attention, I mean, and and almost on a day-to-day basis, frankly, Um, and um, maybe as you guys are hearing from your facilities or working with your facilities, um, maybe sharing some best practices amongst each other would be good, too, Um, but I haven't heard anything yet. If we, if we do, Obviously, that will be something we can have further discussion on. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things that, that um, you guys have, have asked that we talk about is facilities that were designated as COVID units early in the pandemic, You know, what were, what were their experiences? We, we had 23 facilities. Um, five of those facilities were, full facilities were designated as COVID positive facilities and the remaining had, you know, a wing or units unit um, or a floor that was de- designated. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, um, uh, getting, getting them set up um, was a little bit of a challenge. And I think that's some, some lessons learned as us as the agency, kind of looking back how we would do things maybe a little differently. And some things we would do differently is um, it was really, Driven by Medicaid um, and health quality assurance, us as the regulatory body, we came in from a regulatory perspective of as we were going through lists of facilities, um, really looking to see that facility, that individual facility's um, regulatory history. Um, you know, and have we recently been in there? If we've not recently been in there, going in to do a focus infection control survey before an agreement was signed for these twenty-three facilities that we designated. Um, it was nonstop for them and it really was. And we actually had, um, a say in, um, in, in making referrals to facilities, um, examples would be, um, hospitals would reach out to me directly, um, and say, Hey, Kim, we have two, two COVID positive residents. They come, they came from, you know, ABC nursing home. They're not able to take them back. Um, you know, are there any beds available in the designated facilities? And so I'd work with those designated facilities in those areas, reach out to the administrator or corporate official, and, and then work on that, that transfer. Um, in that we were very, I mean, I was very heavily involved in that. Um, and the facilities, I mean, they obviously, um, if they were agency designated COVID facilities, Um, they did have to look at the admission to see not only, you know, yeah, they can manage the resident being COVID positive, but what we did see is some hospitals want to make referrals to our nursing homes or COVID positive nursing homes that were beyond the capability of what a nursing home should be taking. And um, that's something, you know, that we, that we had to work through and those are kind of lessons learned. And we just tried to keep providing education to hospitals that, Hey, you can't just, throw any old person into a nursing home, um, doesn't work that way. They still have to be able to meet their needs. And there were just, a, you know, a learning curve um, with that, I would say, you know, what was a challenge and lesson learned um, for us. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of these, these contracts were actually Medicaid based, you know, they did get an enhanced Medicaid rate. Um, Medicaid really was the, the driver working in concert with myself and actually Deputy Secretary Molly McKinstry. And and obviously that was under the leadership of Secretary Mary Mayhew when she was here, you know, and, and support from Governor DeSantis. And we really think that was a, we believe, you know, I'm sure some, there are critics that that really helped us, you know, early on um, to really, you know, try to get a handle on it. Um, the facilities that were designated, we did make sure that they had adequate PPE supplies. We worked directly with Department of Emergency Management. Um, to make sure that they they had the PPE needs. Um, Not only, you know, that we went in um, as as we know over time when CMS changed requirements for us regulatory wise to go in to do the focus infection control surveys, our 23 designated facilities, I think that we we got to a point—the height of the pandemic—we were probably going in every week to do a focus infection control survey, in addition to our Department of Health going in. And we just felt that we we needed that that strong regulatory, you know, oversight. Did we identify some problems every now and then? Absolutely, um, but they were fixed. I mean, it was deficient practice. Um, they fixed it, and and we moved on. But we. Um, those were some things i think that we learned and the wind down period um you know as we were you know ending those contracts and in august and september um you know some of our lessons learned from that is maybe you know um a couple of facilities it took a lot longer obviously our facilities that were fully designated took a lot longer but really looking at at that and, and how we how we would do those if we had to i hope we don't have to but if we had to do those in the future um, I will say, as you know, during the holidays, um, December, you know, November, December, January, when we were looking at some increase in cases, we did have a discussion um, with a couple of the facilities that were designated, you know, um, early on during the pandemic about, you know, reopening their their wing or unit, um, you know, if we needed to go that route. Because we were concerned about as cases were increasing, um, we were just holding on, hoping that, that facility that we you know wouldn't have to do that, and, and luckily we didn't. Um, but one thing that really helped, I will say, is a lot of facilities learned over time, you know, you know, educated themselves, worked with our county health departments, worked with the HAI program, and really started to feel more comfortable taking care of COVID positive residents. And I've seen a lot more facilities over the past um, you know three six months, so to speak really, um, create their own designated area for their COVID positive residents. They may not be accepting residents from the, you know, hospitals or the community, so to speak, but, you know, if they, if they have residents that are COVID positive, instead of sending them to the hospital or, or, you know, reaching out to a sister facility and say, Hey, I have this COVID positive resident. I, I can't take care of them. They really have set up their own own wings and units internally to accept them. So I think that that's that's really kind of um, you know they just learned over time maybe feel a little more comfortable. I think when everything first started in Florida, obviously everybody was very nervous. There was a lot of you know um, information that was emerging over time was um, you know a little bit scary I think for facilities. But as they they learned and felt more comfortable, uh, then they started developing their wings and wings and units.
1: So. Kim, can I ask for those facilities and, you know, we know most of all of our facilities, they have that designated area. What is the, what are resources or financial relief resources available to those um, facilities who are trying to care for a COVID patient? Um, I think we know that they could cost a a lot more than Mm -hmm. the average patient. So is there some, another relief mechanism given that is there that designation is over
2: um no there we're our agency is not providing an additional you know funding for that um you know like i said for our during the height of the pandemic with the when we had the the agency designated 23 covid positive facilities there was a medicaid rate enhancement but that there is no rate enhancement now so and the the 23 i think one of the other questions was you know what's the what's their current um status as i mentioned several facilities several of our 23 covid positives facilities um they still have some form of you know a wing or unit that they still maintain um and 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 as things were spiking during the holidays I did reach out to a few of those they did work with us a little bit on on taking some residents in from hospitals because we were getting some frantic calls from hospitals about um you know nursing home and ALF residents being there and really didn't need hospital level of care but um yeah we just we do not have any designated um, facilities right now, but facilities can, like I said, set up their their wings and units, and we do do reach out periodically if there's if there's an issue, and we kind of do a case-by-case case, um, if we need to. So that's, um, and I will say some about our COVID, COVID positive facilities, you know, word got out around the nation that we did that, and I received a lot of phone calls from my counterparts in other states asking questions about, you know, us setting that up, they're evidently, their their state leadership wanted to know more about it, so they reached out to me, and we we kind of talked with them through it, shared I shared information with them, and um, and I think some some states eventually started doing what we did. Um, I don't know how many, but I do know that we we I'd had, had a, a lot of facilities um, spoke to that I mean a lot of um, states that that reached out to me. Um, So that's our COVID, our, you know, our COVID units, kind of how, how all that's working. I don't know if any of the medical directors that are on, if facilities that you um, are medical directors of, if they have um, COVID wings or units, um, you know, but um, that is, you know, obviously we're, we're we're seeing, we are still seeing that out there. Um, And moving into, I guess, some of the vaccine questions that we had, most facilities that have had their third vaccine clinic, absolutely um through their long-term care pharmacy partnership through that Walgreens and CDS. Um, and CDC gave guidance on how they you know continue to receive the vaccine. Um, any insight I have on facilities um, getting vaccine right now. Um, obviously, yes, um some of the things if you know nursing homes are saying, you know, hey I you know I got more residents and staff, you can reach out to to me. Um, I am working with um CDR um, Health has been contracted with Department of Emergency Management um, and they they went through and did um, the bulk of the assisted living facilities. They are handling adult family care homes. Now they've done um, Independent living. Um, That's not part of us, you know, a CCRC just regular independent living. We do not regulate independent living, but they worked with those They're also, um, have been doing some HUD facilities and then other, some of the state pods that are out there, um, obviously, um, like for your staff members, um, they can go to one of the state pods that, you know, there are four FEMA sites out there. They can go to those, bring your work ID, you're a healthcare worker, you meet within that, you, you you are in compliance with the governor's executive order for getting the vaccine. If you're a healthcare worker, you know we do have a um, a website, and hopefully everybody has that. It's uh, MyVaccine.Florida.gov, and you you know if you have, like I said, staff members can go to that that website and um, sign up and go to one of the, the pods. Um, or if there are facilities, like I said, I just just had a couple of facilities um, this past couple of days um, that, based on some outreach we had to the facilities, said, "Hey, I have I have like ten more residents that say they want to be vaccinated, now, and a handful of staff." And so we've I've been communicating to um, CDR Health to to get that arranged. But you know, um, obviously, if you're trying to get it done very quickly. You know going to one of the the sites where if you have residents absolutely you can share that to to get that information to us but we to me but we are reaching
0: out to and now a word from our sponsor u.s post-acute care
3: let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations now more than ever post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the Goals of Care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, and I I will add that um, I know... In, on the CDC guidance, they, they talk about the three avenues that facilities could go through. And we recently s- see some updates from AMDA, who's our parent organization. But, you know, talking to your long-term care pharmacies, seeing if they will become a provider, that's definitely um, a good route and make it a plan.
2: <coughs> Absolutely. And, you know, one thing to be a vaccinator in Florida, um, you have to be enrolled in Florida shots. Mm-hmm. So that's an, uh, important too. And I think all the, just about, uh, as far as I know, or am aware of, the long-term care pharmacies, our community pharmacies that a lot of you use, um, they are already enrolled in shots, you know, because there are other vaccines that, you, that they've been given all these years. So they're already enrolled in shots. So that's a good thing we've been, you know, that is something we continue to push and work with that, you know, it, this needs to be a point where, you know, we're not in the allocation business anymore, so to speak. Um, that you just do a normal day-to-day. Um, and so, you know, getting to that, we're, we're moving in that direction, not at that point fully yet, but I think everybody knows that's the direction we're moving in. just wait until it all pans out. Um, so, yeah, thank you for asking all those. Um, how many, um, and I think I, I mentioned the percentage of folks that have been vaccinated, um, the long-term care residents that have been vaccinated, I can just mention those again. Um, 67% of our residents have been vaccinated. Um, 35, a little over 35% of staff have been vaccinated. Um, and as you know, some of our uh, emergency status um, questions. Um, I know everybody hates going in and updating that every single day, um, but we do. We are capturing residents and st- uh, staff members, the numbers of staff and residents that do want vaccines. So that's helping us too do a little outreach and getting more current information from facilities and contact information so that we can pass that along to CDR um, health um, to hopefully, you know, arrange some additional clinics and facilities.
1: Um, Kim, may I ask, um, because I think I asked earlier if, if you needed our clinicians, medical directors, our organization as a whole to help where, where, are we seeing the majority of that vaccine hesitancy? Is it by county, by area of Florida, or is it just sort of dispersed throughout Mm -hmm. the state?
2: I think it's a little bit, you know, dispersed throughout the state. I think, you know, we have seen a little more vaccine hesitancy in our South Florida area, um, maybe some rural areas. Um, but, um, just, you know, I think it's just keep, you know, keep on educating folks on, um, the vaccine. Uh, and I have seen a lot of, you know, I will say this, you know, we, we offered the vaccine to my staff. They're, they're in that category of healthcare worker. They're not providing hands-on care, but they're going in and out of facilities. And, and I do have over 61% of my surveyors have been vaccinated, you know, just like you guys. I mean, I, I can't make it mandatory. I know um, employment-wise, as a private industry, you can make it mandatory for your staff. Um, we're a state agency. We, we cannot make it mandatory. Um, we can highly encourage it, and 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 I do encourage it. And and my um, managers are encourage it every single conversation they have to. So we're doing the same thing. We're educating our staff on um, why are you hesitant to take this? I I have just like some of you may have a. a some of your folks may have some current medical issues that they're trying to you know, get resolved. Um, so we're dealing with a, a little bit of that. Some of them just, they don't wanna get vaccinated at all, um, but trying to just like you continue with that, with that education. Uh, but absolutely, um, I will ask uh, my offices if they're getting any, any strong you know, feedback from some facilities locally. Um, and that's something maybe I can share with in as I get it of what the um, biggest, you know, kind of what some of the hesitancy that that we're seeing um, out there when we're going in and out of facilities and pass that along.
1: Yeah, because I think we're willing to get on a Zoom call, go to the facility, do whatever we need to do to help out, and um, get on our soapbox and preach a little bit about why we want you to take this.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes some of those peer pressures may work too, you know, from, from you know, if my friend got it and 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 the, she's, she's fine, I, I may get it, you know, or even some of the residents that, that if a, you know, a resident has a favorite staff member and they were like, I, you, I got mine, please get yours. Cause it's really gonna, I want, I want my family to come in, you know, and, and you getting vaccines is gonna help us move that along. I think some, you know, we, like I said, we are seeing that. I, I don't know how that's working, um, but we, we are still seeing some of that.
4: Good, good. Yeah. Can I ask uh, a question? Sure question uh, Kim, this is Marty Getz. is your are yours as a rule are your staff being offered opportunity to be tested when they go into facilities um as a courtesy just an, the uh the antigen tests mm-hmm. I mean is that do you know if that's occurring
2: um I do know well well just to let everybody know there there is no current state or federal requirement that surveyors have to be um tested or vaccinated. Um, you know, it's up to the individual states. Um, we early on uh, were very aggressive, and that's something that um, I really pushed for early on for my staff to have the opportunity to get tested. And we did. So we were on that every two weeks staffing, I mean testing, like you know, like early on when the requirements came out before CMS came out with their requirements, uh, we were getting our staff tested about every two weeks. Um, as I mentioned, over 61% of my folks are now vaccinated, too. Um, some still continue with testing. Um, although I can't make it mandatory, you are right, Marty. Um, some facilities have, when we go into a facility, they will ask the surveyor about being tested. Um, and they will say, "You know, I know some facilities say, well, we can offer you the, you know, the, the antigen test. And some, some of my staff are like, yeah, great, go ahead. I appreciate it. then that means I don't have to go get tested at the County Health Department um, some you know do flat-out refuse um, and there there is no requirement for them to, to do that um, obviously that you're right that it would be a courtesy but I do hear that that is happening out there um, yeah
4: I mean your staff go into every room and literally touch every mm-hmm. resident mm-hmm. in these facilities um, our, our intention our plan is to offer Everyone that shows up, and we're in our survey window, Yeah, already know that, um, are, is to offer everybody that shows up uh, an, a rapid test, an antigen test, as a courtesy. Okay. Or not, but to offer it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I, I have seen many facilities do that. Um, I've, been, I've gotten calls from my office saying the surveyor called and said that the facility wanted to give them a, 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 you know, test them before they went in. I said, if the surveyor is fine with that, then absolutely, please do it. You know, I know that, that that's something we definitely encourage um, and support. Um, I, I can't make it mandatory, um, yeah. but obviously I support it 100%. Yeah. Okay,
4: thank you.
2: Absolutely.
1: So Kim, um, I wanted to just make sure we touch upon a few more questions. And um, one is really about how should facilities stay prepared? You know, you mentioned holding your breath around um, spring break. You know, what do you think, what, what do we need to do to stay prepared? I think that now's not
2: a time, I mean, just because people are getting vaccinated and it, you know, now's not a time to let your guard down. Um, and, and obviously we, we are encouraging the visitation, the, especially the, you know, with the re- relaxation of some visitation requirements. I, I think it's a time families come back in, but now's not the time to let your guard down. I think that we still need to continue to push mask wearing. Um, I have a mask right here in my office, but I'm in my office by myself. When I go to another part of our complex in another room, I wear my mask. Um, Continuing to encourage hand hygiene. Um, I think that's very important. Um, I think um, also continuing with uh, donning and doffing PPE appropriately, making sure staff are wearing appropriate PPE. We have still heard actually just last week we were in an assisted living facility and they were still reusing masks. Now we we know that, you know, their supply chains are open. You know, I think that we, there's no need to reuse your mask. Um, so, you know, continuing to adhere to those infection prevention and control requirements. And I think those are things CMS are pushing. Dr. Scott Rifkes, our state, our um, Surgeon General, he keeps, you know, saying the same thing. I have an opportunity to get, see him frequently and and have conversations with him. He, you know, he continues to, to push that message. Um, you know, facilities are still gonna have to stay on top of just the basics, you know, just the basics, infection prevention and control. You know, continuing to screen your employees when they come in um, and and continuing to offer employees, if you don't feel good, you know, we tell that to, to our surveyors. If you wake up and you don't feel good, don't even get in your car to go anywhere. Call your supervisor immediately. Let them know you don't feel good. You'll be taken off the schedule. Doesn't, doesn't matter. I'll blow a time frame before I have an employee of mine not feeling good going into a facility. And I think you guys need, you know, facilities need to, to use that same, you know, message. Of, you know, you know, don't, people should not come to work sick. You know, gone are those days. When we get up and have a runny nose or cough or whatever and, oh, I'm going to feel good, but I'm going to work through it, you know, gone are those days. I think that, you know, facilities are going to have to really, and I know that, that that is a stress factor when it comes to your staff, but I think these are some things that we're going to have to really pay attention to. And I think as medical directors, you pushing those messages I think it are gonna be very strong. I mean, you medical directors are really see, you know, you really need to be very actively engaged and involved with the nursing homes. You you're the educators, you know, you're you're subject matter experts. You you know, we 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 listen to our physicians, right? <laughs> so um, you know, no matter what we think we know, I mean, especially you know, especially now, um, I think that having that medical director involved in those conversations you know starting now I, I imagine as I think we all that there'll be CMS regulatory changes you know at some point you know I, I, I don't know what's coming but I think we all know based on all the you know inquiries all the audits that we're getting you know all the data that CMS is looking at and and you know our our legislative branches, you know, whether it's state or federal are looking at as far as what, what, changes. And I think that we need to be prepared for any changes that come, but we got to stay diligent. I mean, we can't, we can't just say, Oh, yep. Uh, I got vaccinated. I'm done. Um, you know, I think we do still need to, um, yeah, to um, on that, you know, stay on that, top of it.
1: Yeah. Speaking to that very point. Um, I know that there's renewed calls to have, um, the names of medical directors published mm-hmm. um, alongside um, of the nursing home administrator and the director of nursing um, what is ACAs field? like what do what you what is your opinion or insight about that if you don't want to share the opinion just carry well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you um, as a state survey agency director, I absolutely agree. I think that the medical directors, um, name should be be there. The facility, you know, is required for the regulatory requirements to have a medical director. Um, the, you know, if you look at Florida's our, our Florida Help Finder, and um, most of you administrators on the call, Marty knows if you look up his facility, um, his name is listed. You know, it's, <laughs> his name is right there. I understand it'll be removed at some point. <laughs> but um, his name is, his name is there as the, as the administrator, the financial officer is listed. So I'm not, you know, I, I think it, um, I think for our state, you know, we are a big push for transparency. Um, you know, I, I, I cannot speak for the secretary of our agency, but I can speak for, for my role as a state director. Whoever's, this, whoever's that medical director, it should, we, we sh- it should be out there. It should be known.
1: And what if um, there's also a push? Um, I know recently the California um, submitted, there, there was legislation submitted to have those medical directors of nursing facilities um, be certified medical directors, mm-hmm. which is a, um, a board certification. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other states that have this, but Florida does it. What do you think about that as far as your recommendations?
2: I think that's probably the future. Um, I think that, that that and publication of, of medical directors' names are, are part of the future. Um, I think that that certification of the medical director, I think that was in one of those, um, in that early report, what was it, released in September, that commission on COVID, you know, that was um, an early report that, you know, CMS had a, or HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, had a, uh, you know, uh, industry leaders, stakeholders, advocates you know that you know did like a, a work group and I think that was one of their recommendations to push for um, certification of a medical director I, I don't see you know why I don't I, I think that's a good thing I think that goes a long way to you know and obviously I think having the medical directors um, behind that I think it gives it a lot more leverage and I, I think it, again it just just shows that as a medical director you you're very serious about your role um, you and um, you're,
0: you're very supportive of, of what you need to do um, in, in our in our nursing facilities. Diane? Yes, Dr. Kaplan. Yeah, just make mention, Kim, hi, Dr. Kaplan. Hey, Dr. Kaplan. Uh, hey, um, just uh, as an FYI, okay, a year ago at AMDA, uh, Florida sponsored, you may be aware of it, a resolution uh, just to that effect to mandate minimum training for medical directors serving in that role. So, um, we have at least a national, uh, our parent organization backing. And uh, I think we really need to rekindle that, uh, starting with you know people such as FHCA, leading age, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan, it's great to see you. Same here. The other uh, tiny thing I want to add, Diane, apropos to public listing, Kim, I assume you would be okay with just the name of the medical director in the same way the administrator and the facility are listed uh, without a mandatory listing of private contact uh, information. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah. I think that I think, I think there's a push in this day and age for more transparency, but I think there needs to be some control over that transparency. Uh, but I would agree with you, Dr. Kaplan. Just a just name, just like the administrator's name. Um, our financial, you know, officer's name. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank
1: you. That's uh, it's happily that you don't want everybody knowing your cell phone,
0: which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Only yourself, Diane. Okay. Try to keep yeah. it in-
2: yeah. I'll give out all the cell phones. Not to worry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I got some, a lot of people have given out my cell phone number. I get people calling me from all over asking me.
0: So, so yeah, Diane, from an official standpoint, let me follow up on my thought on that. Sure. I actually think there should be two tiers of public listing. I think the hospitals, DCF, surveyors, official medically related agencies in any way, shape, or form, I have no problem if they have my personal contact info. I don't think my personal info should be put out on the in the yellow pages, et cetera. I have no problem with the facilities number, obviously. <laughs> People can get a hold of me as medical director whenever they want. If they want to, my name's listed. It's on the board in the facility lobby, etc. But I do think there should be tiered listing. Mm-hmm. One tier for people who like a uh, Sunday night, eight p.m. ER physician really has an issue, COVID-related issue or whatever with my building. They should be able to get a hold of me, and I have no problem with them having my personal contact info. Thanks.
2: Absolutely. Um, and Dr. Sacada, I do have a couple of other comments if I can about you know keeping staying prepared. And some of my staff sent me a, a couple of notes, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention a few things: is making sure you know, and we all know it's coming. The additional you know, the full time coverage by that qualified infection um, preventionist, and I think I mentioned that that uh, you know earlier, you know, and making sure that that facilities still have their adequate supplies of PPE. You know, we, we mentioned about, you know, staying on top of those recommendations um, and, and providing staff ongoing training on infection prevention and control. Don't, you know, don't let your guards down, you know, now. And I think it's, re, it's gonna require administrators, directors of nurse, other nursing leadership in the facility, infection preventionists. I mean, even the medical director doing rounds within the facility, observing, just like when we come in to do a survey, we're observing, you know, if you look at our reports, Majority of where we gather our information from is through observation. So facilities need the same, follow that same process. Of, you know what? That's what we're seeing. We're watching staff don and doff PPE. We're watching them. You know, use hand hygiene or not use hand hygiene between patients. So those are some of the things I think that that we need to still stay on top of. And I know that we um, have had a lot of conversations about about COVID and infection prevention and control. Um, I do want to take a a few minutes um, to also mention there are other other things that we are seeing out there that are grave concern in our facilities as well. We are still seeing concerns with um, CPR, you know, a resident being full code, um, facilities not knowing the code status and, you know, performing CPR um, or, uh, you know, again, you know, issues with advanced directives in general. We have seen a big, um, increase of elopements in our nursing homes, um, very serious elopements, um, residents getting out and being, being found miles and miles, um, you know, down busy streets, down, uh, honestly, I-4, um, and, and being gone for hours, um, we've had a situation where a resident left a facility, um, walked to their house, uh, there, where they've where they used to to live um, and facility not knowing where they were. Um, You know, we are seeing issues related to care and services. Um, Residents falling out of bed with fractures. Um, The staff just not, you know, paying attention, essentially, not following their plan of care. Um, So while we have COVID and we're still in the public health emergency, um, we have seen a um, uptick In our immediate jeopardies that we have seen out there, I will say from October the 1st through the end of February, um, we have seen a a huge, almost a double um, from previous years related to infection, uh, related to immediate jeopardies. Yeah, we still have the occasional um, immediate jeopardy related to failure to um, clean or follow manufacturers' recommendations of glucometer between resident use. Um, but some of the, the more concerning findings we have recently with immediate jeopardy have been, um, you know, CPR, elopement, um, just basic, you know, care, care and services not being provided. So um, I just wanted to, to pass that along as well, because you as medical directors, you know, you do play, a, you know, you're, you should be involved uh, when that is happening in, in your facilities. Um, and and if we do have an IJ situation in a facility and, and you as a medical director are not aware, that obviously is a problem <laughs> that the administrator should be communicating. Even um, even something that, you, you know, it may not be related to the medical director, uh, but you still need to be involved, especially with advanced directives. You need to be involved, um, you know, in those and working with facilities. And I'm not sure, when we do have an immediate jeopardy situation, we're working with the facility. I'm not sure the medical director is really pulled in. Obviously, we like to have our interviews with the medical director um, or the pharmacist, depending on what it is. But um, I just wanted to to make sure that um, that we had that I had an opportunity to mention that because we, we are seeing some serious um, issues out there, and I'd be remiss if I didn't didn't point that out too. So.
1: I, th- I thank you for that, that is, um, is very helpful and I- I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, if anyone has any questions for Kim, we still have a few minutes,
0: you know. Diane, I do, I'm sorry to take time, okay, but I do have a question that I put in the chat box. Um, so Kim, a specific scenario, a patient who was gonna be admitted for rehab from acute hospital setting, uh, was hospitalized for a totally non COVID related diagnosis, let's just say UTI with sepsis, is fully vaccinated and COVID negative, okay, within 24 hours of transfer or upon potential transfer. Do they still need to be quarantined as many facilities have been doing with all transfers from the hospital for 14 days? You
2: know, I, I think that, um, and I, I believe that, and I I don't have it in my office. I think it, I think I remember reading something. C- CDC changed that recommendation.
0: There's no requirement right. for them to be quarantined. Right, but some of the facilities like mine, within our corporate structure, are still doing that. There, uh, so I'm trying to at least get some backing to not yeah. have to do that. And no, I point to the current regs. Okay. Yeah.
2: Cor- continue. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. Kaplan. and we I answer that. Period. I mean, we talk about that periodically with Florida Healthcare and Leading Age. You know, go back to current CDC. Um, and obviously we don't want people to, to be isolated or in quarantine unnecessarily. Um, that, that really impacts their psychosocial functioning. Um, so no, you're, you're right. Given the CDC and I want to say Dr. Rifkes, our surgeon general, I think many of you may have talked to him over time. He's addressed that on a couple of our calls and maybe the next nursing home call we have, which I think is the first of April, we can readdress that, but we We follow the CDC recommendations.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Thanks. Sure. Um, Kim. It's, it's Marty again. By the way, we are not quarantining new admissions. We are getting the uh, mm-hmm. the testing status prior to admission here. Sure. I, Kim, how, how is your staff probing the advanced directive? How how are they how are they probing that? What do they do to probe that? What?
2: When, uh, well, a lot of what we're finding, Marty, um, frankly, is some self reports that through you know facility reported incidents or um, um, the state adverse incidents, they're coming to us through those um, self reports, um, and then we would just investigate it. I mean, what do you mean, like probing? Like so, for example,
4: during a survey, would your staff mm-hmm. to a nursing assistant and ask if they know the the code status? On the resident she's caring for,
2: um, we we really would ask more about yeah the the advance directives. Um,
3: okay.
2: It it wouldn't be that we would just generally go around and poll CNAs on you know the code status of your resident. Obviously, um, when there's a concern as part of our investigation, we would ask if they were informed as to what the code status was. Um, but you know, I mean, CMS really modified some of their requirements a couple of years ago to really focus on that advanced I
1: know. You know, yeah. care
2: planning yeah. which would be part of that advanced directives
1: yeah
4: okay
1: sure so and i, I wanna, yeah i want to thank everyone thank you kim for um giving us such a thorough uh, like update on everything thank you so much and um if you have any questions please um email us so that we can Get those questions back to Kim and um, everyone have a great day. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post Acute Care.